uh, on your chairs, and um, you'll find a kind of a contextual understanding structure for the book. A number of you are new. Some of you have spoken to me. I kind of jumped right back into James after a significant season. Uh, I, I printed as many as I had paper for, um, and I realize I may not have one for everyone. However, if you're a front row parishioner, there are four or five on the front rows. Uh, these are for you. Um, this is what we have taught over the many times we have opened to the book of James. And by the way, turn to James chapter 3, if you would, this morning. Um, this is how we see the book of James, or how I do and how I've sought to teach it to you. Um, James is the oldest book in the New Testament, and uh, I've labeled it Real Christianity, the Lifestyle and Convictions of a Biblical Christian. This is the pastor of the Church of Jerusalem speaking exhortationally, prophetically, brotherly, exhorting the people of God who've been saved or professed to be saved, who've been dispersed into the, uh, the Roman Empire, to live like a Christian. And don't be deceived by thinking you are when in fact you may not be. So these are tests and these are the titles I think uh, I said different ways to say what James is saying. And uh, this is really for your benefit to help you have conversations and to understand paragraph connections. Uh, The big idea, the thought is faith properly understood is integrated in all of life and shows up in everything. Christianity is not a compartmentalized experience. It's not a Sunday thing or a Bible study thing or a once in a while thing. Christianity is a life thing. And the manifestations of my relationship with Jesus Christ are to be expressed even when I eat and I drink. If I can eat or drink to the glory of God, there is nothing outside of the bounds of what I ought to be able to glorify God in. The pathos, which means the kind of the vibe of this book, is prophet-like and brotherly. This is how real Christianity thinks and lives. This is the proof of genuine faith. And so this is an effort to catch you up. If you're joining us, this will give you an opportunity to kind of get a ramped up. We're in chapter 3 today. Um, And if you'll turn back to that, and I realize this may be a distraction. And by the way, I didn't expect to print it in color. So those little things that you see, Scripture for me is always green. That's part of the way I do my notes. So green is the Scriptures. And if it happens to be yellow, it's Harry, don't forget to say this. If you don't say this, you've really missed the mark. Um, So, And if you don't see any colors, it's because I just whipped it out, and there it is. Um, number 10 is where we were recently, and uh, the big, well, number 9 and 10 is where we have been, and I want you to see, this is page 3 at the top, chapter 2 basically says Christianity is more than words, chapter 3 says, but Christianity is displayed by your words. So that's the connection bridge that I see between chapter 2 and 3. And then number 9, real Christians are cautious to assume the role of a Bible teacher. The work of words. Because the Word of God works, Bible teachers work through the words they proclaim. And the reason we're not anxious and we are cautious is because of the greater accountability for accuracy, what we say, and the potential for hypocrisy saying it, not living it. 
and there is a stricter judgment for the teacher. Genuine faith is not proven by perfection. We all stumble in many ways. Harry's going to stumble. That does not disqualify me from being a teacher. It just means I need to be careful as a teacher because somehow people think the person up front or the parent of the child or the leader of the group, somehow, if they're going to teach it, they ought to live it. And to not live it undermines it. It discredits it. So the reason for the teacher to and the parent who teaches and the leader who teaches, the reason this exhortation is made is because people aspire to positions that are elevated for the prestige of those positions. But when you assume that space, you should do so cautiously recognizing the greater accountability. Genuine faith is not perfection, but it is humble caution as it expresses itself in leadership. And that's chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Genuine Christianity, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways, including the teacher. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, an indicator, perfect meaning mature, not perfection as in no sin or no failure. He just got done saying we all stumble in many ways. If he does not stumble as a pattern of life, he's a perfect or mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. You can control your tongue. You can affect your whole life. That's the idea. It's an indicator, and it's a governor, number nine. Number ten, Christians are real Christians, daily target their tongue and consistently control their words because genuine faith is proven by its understanding and use of the tongue. Verse three, now if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are great and are drawn are driven by strong winds, they're still directed by a very small rudder. Whoever, whoever, whatever, wherever, the indication of the, or the inclination of the pilot desires. So I'm going to need to get my glasses because everything's blurry. <laughs> You're going, can he not read? No, I can't see, so I'm making this up as I go. <laughs> so Karen, my wife, is in... Dallas today, and uh, she told me yesterday how nice Texas is, the free state of Texas, and uh, she's uh, this weekend getting training on uh, how to help our dogs be good citizens, (laughs) and I am the caregiver of the dogs, and uh, so today was a mad scramble just to get to church, so if you have children... I'm sympathetic. <laughs> if you have dogs, but that's the reason the glasses didn't get out. I've just been discombobulated. So <clears throat> let's go back to reading the Bible and the strong winds. There are big boats, strong winds, even adverse winds are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. And watch verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things, has great capacity and I take the great things, it can be prideful things, it can be boastful things, but I take it in the way this is delivered. The tongue has, it's small, but it's powerful. And because of our human weakness, we need to target the tongue. 
because the tongue can direct our life. It does big ships, it bridles big horses, and it has the capacity to do great things. It also has the capacity to do things that are destructive, greatly destructive things. Verse 5 at the end, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Do you feel it? Small, big, small, big, small organ, big impact. Target it because it has both power for good and power for destruction. Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. In other words, it's the hub of all kinds, the whole spectrum of bad outcomes. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. So it can destroy it like a forest fire. It can defile the entire body, meaning it can disqualify you from worshiping. It can stain you that disqualifies you from access to God. Without sanctification, no man will see the Lord. Sin separates. That's the idea and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. So there is a devilish quality. There's a dark side of the power of the tongue, and it can be destructive and defiling. It is untamable for every species of beast and bird, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. The tongue is untamable. It can and it is controllable, but it's not tameable. You can't trust it. It's untrustable. Like a wild animal that you have somehow domesticated, you can't treat it as if it's trustworthy, your tongue. No matter how capable or how much training, your tongue is still prone to devilish, dark, destructive, defiling behavior. It is a restless evil looking for an opportunity to break out of the cage. It needs to be controlled. It's full of deadly poison. So we we ended last week by simply proclaiming any Christian who understands this and the power of this must target the tongue. It is an intentional focus, not a casual consideration. You must be constantly cautious. When you got up today, part of your preparation for today is, Lord, set a watch over my mouth. Govern my mind and the things that come out of my mouth. It's both powerful good and it's both powerful evil and destruction. It is untamable. It is untrustable. And for the Christian to say, I'm a Christian, and behave in a way that is destructive with the tongue, you need to know, and I need to know, James, it's unacceptable. With it, we bless verse 9, our Lord and Father. That is, we praise, we come to Grace Church, we sing songs of praise, we give confessions of honor to God, whether at home, in the marketplace, in the neighborhood, or in a worship space, or at Cornerstone on Sunday. We bless our Lord and Father, and yet, with that same instrument, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. This is James saying it's unacceptable. Stop it. It happens, but you shouldn't do it. 
own it, have that as a conviction, a compelling belief. I'm going to target my tongue because of things that come out of my mouth that aren't worthy of the dignity of an image bearer, the things I say to my wife or my children or the people that cut me off on the five, those are things for a Christian that are inconsistent with biblical Christianity. It's not that it doesn't happen, it's unacceptable. Now let me just pause here for a minute. I know I punctuated this last time we were together. That has to be a conviction. There cannot be a justification. Yeah, I said what I said because you did what you did. Do you hear that? I I would have never said that if you hadn't uh, said that or done that. That's called self-justification. And James is saying this instrument designed to give praise to God and edification to people cannot be a contradiction to your Christianity. It's unacceptable. It's not given to you for that. Cursing, we all get. Turn to Psalm 109. And I want to make, uh, I didn't get everywhere I wanted to go last week. And I uh, decided I'm going to give you a couple of additional applications as a transition to this kind of general beginning of the next paragraph, which we haven't quite gotten to yet. Because it's uncontrollable, because it's untrustable, because speaking in ways that are hurtful, Cursing is intentionally hurtful speech. Curse is not just language unbecoming to a Christian. Carnal language, vulgar language. It's the words that are weapons that are meant to injure someone or to condemn them, to damn them to hell. Go to hell. God damn you. All the things we say or our culture justifies, because you injured me, I want to condemn you to destruction. And what God would say is, that's cursing. And the Jews were really good at it. They had all kinds of like memorized things to say about people who offended them. We have our own little artillery chest of words that are justified expressions when someone injures us or violates us or disappoints us. Cursing is unacceptable. You may do it, but you need to own it. Forgive me, I shouldn't have said that. And it doesn't matter what they said, what they did, or didn't do. James says, what's built to bless God and edify men cannot be a tool of destruction and damage to people. You need to be vigilant. I argued for a couple of applications last week. First of all, less words. Silence is a good thing. Vigilance is a necessary thing. Head up, eyes open, pay attention. Think first before you talk. Dependence. Without God, I can't do anything, and I certainly can't manage my tongue. I need to walk in the Spirit so I can talk in the Spirit. If I'm not dependent upon God, there's no chance I'm not going to violate this priority of God. But I want to give you an additional consequence. I found it sobering. Karen and I are going through the Psalms. This is Psalm 109. We were in this Psalm not too long ago. Turn there with me. 
Here's a sobering consequence for those of you who feel justified to injure someone with words, to tell them where to go, some damaging outcome you desire for them, and whatever justification you have for saying it, cursing. And there's Christianese that we, we, we clean up everything, but we don't necessarily change its effect. Cursing is damaging and destructive to the heart of a person. Uh, David is talking in Psalm 109. He's talking about uh, the persecutors, the evil enemies that are injuring him, both practically, physically, and verbally. And he says of them, verse 27, Let them know that this is your hand. You, Lord, have done it, referencing the, uh, the outcomes that he hopes for. Uh, that God would judge justly. And by the way, there is one lawgiver and judge. We'll see it in chapter 4. There's one person who truly knows rightful justice and consequences for a person. One. James chapter 4 says, it's not you, it's Jesus. And there's only one judge and jury. It's Jesus. I can't meet out appropriate outcomes to justify or communicate justice. I don't have the facts. And one missing reality can affect the whole way you view something. I was talking with one of our former elders last night, yesterday. And I was observing certain things that had gone on over a course of time and He was rehearsing with me what he was thinking while he was doing what he was doing. And I will tell you this, it changed the perspective I had. I told him what I thought. I told him why I thought it. I told him with a perception that would be natural to any observer. But all of that was handicapped by what I didn't know. That's you. And it certainly was me. James says, we ought to honor the Lord by granting him the exclusive station of judge and jury. He's the one lawgiver, and he's the one judge. He has the power to condemn and to release. Harry doesn't, nor do you. And Psalm 110, or Psalm 109, rather, David is saying, listen, God, you judge. And then he says about these people by way of description. Verse 28, let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, they shall be ashamed, but your servant will be glad. Let my accusers be clothed with dishonor. Let them cover themselves with their own shame as with a robe. With my mouth, I give thanks abundantly to the Lord. In the midst of many, I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy, that's me, exposed and vulnerable, to save him, those who judge his soul. Now go over to verse 17. This is basically saying, I release them to your sovereignty. I want your justice to be done. I believe they need to be judged because of the injurious and bad behavior, but I'm committing that to you. You're the judge of the soul. But watch verse 17. This is the sobering consequence. Talking about these bad actors. 
He also, this is the bad guy, the enemies, the injurer of David, he also loved cursing. Now watch this phrase. So it came to him. He did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. Now just pause for a minute. Look up. He's a cursor, and the curse came back like a boomerang. What was forfeited was blessing. He's not going to know that. Because every cursor is exposed to the injury of their words. I'm trying to injure you because you hurt me, you violated me, you cut me off, you failed me. And I'm going to curse. And what David said about these cursors who love cursing is that comes back like a boomerang. That's sobering. And what doesn't come back and what isn't available is blessing. He did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. Let me tell you what, if you're a blesser of people, this is what you can expect to come back, blessing. You're a cursor of people, this is what you can expect to come back, cursing, consequences, condemnation. Look at verse 18. He he has clothed himself with cursing as with a garment. This is his life, his pattern. This is what he wears as an attribute of life. Now, this is the part that got my attention, and I wanted you to see it as a sobering consequence. And it entered into his body like water and like oil into his bones. Here's a sobering consequence of cursing. Not only is it unacceptable, it's detrimental to you. It's unhealthy. Water in the belly, they had a salt solution, water solution that they would give as a test for adultery, and it would make a person vomit. It would, it would swell their stomach, and it would make them sick. And oil to the bones has the idea, is it not just something that makes you sick? It's poisonous. It's toxic. All the way to the bone. I'll tell you what, you want to be a cursor? You're going to be unhealthy and sick. You're going to be toxic and poisoned. It's like you're handling arsenic and you can't deliver it without being impacted by it. For Harry, that's a sobering consequence. So not only is it unacceptable, it is highly detrimental. And if that's the pattern, the garments, the clothing of your life, you're sick. And you're going to be sick. Bitterness is going to well up, which is where all that goes. And it's going to poison every relationship and every human experience. It'll damage the best parts of you. So stop it. Turn over to, with me to Psalm 92. Silence, vigilance, dependence, hesitance because of the big consequence. I've added one more, confidence. I wanted to share this last week. I just didn't have permission. And I'm committed to not sharing anything without permission if it involves someone, not me. Seventh grade, middle school, true story. Virginia Beach. A middle school of a couple of thousand. Talent contest. 
two finalists, an African-American breakdancer and a pianist. The African-American breakdancer went first. If you're a middle schooler, guess what you like? Breakdancing. People screamed and hollered their affirmation. There were judges, though. It wasn't a talent contest based on how high or how much you uh, holler or how loud you clap. It's based on the judges. Breakdancer went, glorious applause. Pianist comes to the piano, plays a contemporary piece, wins the contest. The judges announce the winners or the winner. When the pianist's name was announced as the winner, the auditorium booed. People mocked. People said words that were hurtful and kind, undeserving, hurtful. That was 50 years ago. That little girl is my wife. And those words and that experience affects her all the way to today. That's what words can do. They can steal something. I talked to her about it. I got permission. That's one. And she's in Dallas, so it's not like I can tell it because she's not here. <laughs> But she said, you know, I used to be the little girl that sat at the front of the class. I used to be engaged in the conversation. I went from the girl at the front to the girl at the back. We went to Psalm 92. We're reading through the Psalms. There's a verse there that we enjoyed, kind of the fresh bread for the 92nd Psalm, which was just a few weeks ago. And, and I say this as a confidence builder if you're like that little girl, not a little girl anymore. My wife is extremely talented, but she doesn't believe she is. The consequence of words are powerful, but here's a statement that trumps human words. This is Psalm 92, And David is talking about the great works of God, whose thoughts are very deep. Verse 5, a senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. It's funny, my family can't use the word stupid, but God did. It means somebody who's lacking some brain cells in the application thereof, foolish, immature. The foolish, senseless Stupid man doesn't get this, that when the wicked sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, look at verse 7, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. When evil abounds, it's an opportunity for justice and righteousness to be vividly displayed. When God allows evil like he's allowing now, it is a precursor of rectifying the unrighteousness by a display of holy justice. Righteousness requires justice. 
And love requires dealing with sinful, injurious behavior. And the senseless don't get that. It is a means for God to display God's glory. Verse 8, But you, O Lord, are on high forever, and behold, your enemies, O Lord, and behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. They're going down, is the context. Now listen, no matter how dark and how difficult, they're going down as an act of justice and as an act of God's glorious declaration of his purity and righteousness. They're going down. But David says, I'm being lifted up. Verse 10, here's the verse I wanted you to see. If you have been victimized and injured by words either thoughtlessly said or intentionally used, this is Karen's verse, But you, God, this is David's declaration, you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Now watch this. And I have been anointed with fresh oil. Now let me commentate a little bit on that verse. No matter what's going on around me, no matter what the evildoers are doing or saying, no matter how negatively impactful it is on me in my human journey of life, there's two things I know. One, you will rectify the injustice for your glory. I'm not the lawgiver. I'm not the judge. You're going to get it done. That's what you do. And secondly, whatever somebody says, whatever evil is done, It doesn't change anything about who I am before you. I'm anointed with fresh oil. Let me tell you about anointing. Who got anointed? Priests got anointed. As an identifying mark of their unique station and position. Kings got anointed. David was anointed king. It is a ceremonial event signifying God anointing and setting apart, identifying a person for service and significance. And David says, I know you have freshly anointed me again today. Which is his way of saying, I know my identity and you have validated my identity. You have, it's today. And tomorrow you're going to refresh my anointing. You're going to remind me again of my station, my status, and my significance. It's fresh oil. And you have strengthened me, despite about what anybody says of me and whatever opposition is opposed to me. You have strengthened my horn, the instrument of my capacity to stand against and overcome the adversary. The wild ox was the only animal not afraid of a lion. The lion could not and would not attack a wild ox with a big horn. David is saying, I'm strong. I've got fresh strength. No matter what the enemy says, no what the enemies do. I am anointed by God again today, and my identity is secure because of who said I am what I am. Karen, I wish those young people had validated your strength your significance, 
I wish and hope that your husband validates your significance and your identity. He should. But if those out there and those who live in here do not validate you, I want you to know who does validate you. Because if he says you are who he says you are, you are that no matter whether anybody validates that or not. You're a daughter of God, that's why I have on my phone, Princess Karen. It's meant to remind me who she is and who I'm talking to. That's who she is. And you know what else she is? If you look at my text, I sent it to her this morning. You're a wild ox. (laughs) Isn't that romantic? I put a smiley face. She knows what I mean. There are three nationally known, internationally known dog trainers in Dallas. She's at that place, about 100 people. One of the renowned dog trainers asked Karen to handle his dog today. And I said, you're a wild ox. She had, she had grimace like, oh my goodness, I'm under pressure. Just remember, Karen, who you are. Whether Harry validates it, whether somebody else validates it, it doesn't change it. I don't know who I'm talking to, but I know somebody in this room is carrying a description that you're inclined to believe that's a contradiction to who God has defined you to be. Jesus is who he says he is. And Jesus can do what Jesus says he can do. And what Jesus says about you is true of you, whether anybody else validates that or not. And if you understand, would you say amen? Amen. Somebody here needs to lock down who you are and who God says you are every single day, not because you're somebody, but because he declared you to be somebody. Child of God, precious daughter of God, Uniquely created for the glory of God, Son of God. Bearing the righteousness of Christ through a work not your own. You receive it like a gift. You get adopted into the family. You have capacity. You have identity. You have ability. And this is not a Joel Osteen self-help talk. This is theologically grounded in a reality. And someone has damaged you And it's hurt you. And you try to make up for it. Or if you can't make up for it, you try to compensate for it. Accept it. Live out of it. Enjoy it. It's fresh again today. Son of God. Daughter of God. Uniquely created for the glory of God. You have something to offer? Enjoy offering and you're a wild ox. You're strong. He strengthens your horn. And no no matter who's the assaulter, you'll survive and you'll flourish. Because that's what God said. And the tongue can steal your heart. And his voice needs to strengthen and steal it. S-T-E-E-L. Consequence and confidence encouragements.
All right, can we go to the next paragraph? You ready for that? Number 10. Verse 13. Oh, and, and listen, it's not only unacceptable, but 11 and 12 say the consistent expression of cursing, it's impossible for a Christian. It's just not possible. A fig tree can't produce olives. Salt water can't produce fresh. Impossible. So if the pattern of your life is hurtful speech, cursing, wounding language, you ought to reassess your conviction of faith because saying it doesn't make it so. Verse 13, shifting gears. Real Christians, this is number 11, employ heavenly wisdom, gently doing good and promoting peace. Genuine faith is proven by the gracious wisdom it displays and dispenses. Verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? This is a rhetorical type statement. Who's the person among you who claims to be wise? Who is the person among you, understanding only used here in the New Testament, has the idea, who is the person who is promoting themselves as possessing significant knowledge, the way the world works, the way life ought to work, what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. Who possesses wisdom by claim to the would-be wise, to the would-be, I know something, you ought to listen to me. Hey, you ought to do what I'm telling you to do. Sound like a teacher? Yes. This is a warning to teachers. The technical term for wisdom is sophist. If you have the name Sophie, which I know one of you does, it's the word for wisdom. Sophist was a wise sage. This is a teacher. He knows stuff. Listen to him. If you would be the would-be wise, no, you're the parent who knows it, and you're telling your children, I know it. Listen to me. I've got this. I know how this works. You're that person. You're the claimer. James goes on to say, let him show by his good behavior. So we're moving from words to work. We're moving from words to actions. I make a word claim. I'm wise and I'm understanding. Listen to me. I'm a teacher. You ought to give credence to me. Let that person, male or female, young or old, let him show. Let him put on display by his good behavior, his kalos behavior. Two words for good, agathos, beneficial, practical, good. You need help up the stairs, good behavior, I'm going to help you up the stairs. You need a meal, I bring you a meal. That's agathos. Beneficial, helpful, practical. Kalos enriches practicality with nobility. Nobility means your behavior is not just helpful, it's noble. It's so significant, it's so impactful, it's so virtuous that it inspires people. 
Man, I wish I, I wish I was like that. Man, I need to be like that. That's kalos. It does two things. It inspires people and it glorifies God. Good deeds are great deeds if they're kalos deeds. Let the person who proclaims wisdom, the sophist, the wise one, and the one who says, I understand and you ought to hear me, the would-be wise teacher, Not just technically the position, but practically the personal application. Let that person making that claim validate that claim by the kalos behavior, the noble service of benefit they render, the soul-strengthening constructive actions they display, generated, listen to this, by the gentleness of wisdom. You know, or the meekness of wisdom, some of your Bibles will translate it. Meekness, you understand this word. It's strength under control. It's constructive strength. Meekness, you can say, is weakness. The Greeks thought meekness was weakness. Meekness is not milk toast passivity. Actually, meekness is strength, but it's under control strength. It is governed by God strength. It is governed by wisdom in this text, the meekness of wisdom. True wisdom is under control actions that edify and strengthen. You, you know Ephesians chapter 4, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word that builds up. This is actions that build up, not words that build up. It's the behavior that builds up. The wisdom from God, which is what true wisdom is, is displayed not by what you say, in terms of your claim about I'm a wise person or your behavior reflects you think you are, it's displayed by the actions that demonstrate the wisdom in action by how it controls itself for productive benefit for other people. Meekness is power under control. It's the actions that are edifying, soul-strengthening. It ministers grace to those who see it Grace to those who experience it, not just grace to those who hear you say it. The validating test of whether you are energized, informed, and expressing true wisdom is by how you act and the productive impact of how you act. It inspires It blesses and it glorifies true wisdom. This section, this paragraph, I'm going to read it and then I'm going to pray because we're out of time. And there's a ton of details in here, which is why this is an introduction to this paragraph. He says, if you think you're wise, you better be displaying the validation of that claim. True wisdom is from heaven. 
You can have silver hair and be stupid. Because wisdom isn't a length of life. Yes, it's probable, more probable perhaps, that old people learn even if it's through the school of hard knocks. But wisdom is a divine asset. Proverbs 2.6, wisdom comes from God. Wisdom is God's perspective. I can live all my life, go through all kinds of experiences and still not be wise. Because wisdom is a gift from God to those that he blesses and who seek it in the ways honoring to God. It's a divine asset. It is supernatural. That's why you ask God if any man is... James 1.5, since you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives it generously without reproach. He doesn't say find an old guy with silver hair and ask him. He says ask God. Now God can use people to dispense wisdom, but the source is God. And you have to get it from God. And how do you know you possess it? How do you know you possess heavenly wisdom from God? It has assets and attributes. Because sometimes you claim it and the assets and attributes contradict it. So I'm going to read this. But, adversative conjunction. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, you're lying against the truth that you're wise. And you're, you're, you're discrediting it by your attitude, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy. Verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, because that's where all wisdom comes from, but is earthly, that's human, it's worldly wisdom, natural, that's fleshly wisdom, demonic is devilish, for where jealousy, selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing, those are the products, we're going to talk about all of this in the future. Verse 17, watch this. On the other hand, the wisdom from above. So he's going back to what is validated by good conduct. The wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Number 11, real Christians employ heavenly wisdom, gently doing good and promoting peace. That's verse 18. Genuine faith is proven by the gracious wisdom it displays and dispenses. This is a test of real Christianity. And it's not what I say. It's what I do. And the engine out of which I do it. James chapter 3, 13 through 18 an introduction. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather today. The Bible lives, it's active, it's divine, it's supernatural, it cuts. And Lord, it penetrates all the way to the hard places, the bone, to the end that the person of God, the man or woman of God, can be right with God and with people so that they can rightly manifest who you are and rightly influence people to desire to know you and they can see what you are like by watching those who claim to know you because they do. Lord, my prayer today is you would govern our tongue 
and you would help us to do a personal examination in light of this definition, to have honest conversation. Does my behavior cause people to want to do the good they watch me do and give glory to the God who's worthy of honor? Does my behavior display constructive strength, the strengthening of the soul actions that make people better and stronger? Do my actions display wisdom, which comes from above? That's my prayer for us all. Honest reflection, spiritual examination to the end that we might manifest real Christianity and enjoy blessing from heaven, not cursing. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.